We thank you that it is good news to us about life, about our life here and how we are called to live in it as disciples of Jesus, and Father, also how it is a promise for our eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would hear both of that, those both of those pieces of good news to us today. Amen. Please turn in your in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 3. So the Bible tells us uh, everything that we that we need to know about our life with God in the world. It tells us everything that we need to know about God. It tells us everything we need to know about ourselves. It tells us everything that we need to know about the world that we live in. The Bible gives us all of the information that we need for the spiritual life. It tells us everything that we need to know, but the Bible doesn't tell us everything that there is to know. In fact, the Bible, and the more I read the Bible, the more I discover that it hints at a lot of mysteries that we don't and can't fully know. And one of those mysteries is one that we're going to talk a little bit about today, and that is uh, the reality of evil or Satan or the tempter or the tester. He's given many different names in the scripture, and we're going to, there's a lot of mystery behind him. The, the Bible calls him most often Satan, which means adversary, but the Bible doesn't really tell us where he comes from doesn't really tell us why he is there. Uh, throughout history, there's, there's, a, there's a few different stories, one in Isaiah and one in Ezekiel and another passage in Jude, and we've, we've kind of put this story together about, um, uh, about Satan being a, a fallen angel from heaven and that he took one-third of the angels with him. And I think that there's probably some truth to that story, but there's no part in the Bible that says that this is where evil comes from or this is where Satan comes from. Just on the third page of the Bible, there, in God's good, 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 very good creation, there is this serpent that comes in. Where did he come from? God's creation is good, 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 and very good. Where did this serpent come from? And the Bible doesn't really give us a clear answer about that. But what the Bible does do is it gives us everything that we need to know to overcome the power of this evil one, this one who is against us. The more that I read the Bible, the more that I'm coming to see that the Bible hints to us over and over again that there is a, a, another spiritual, bigger story going on behind the veil of this world that we can't see with our eyes. There's more taking place. There's a, a battle going on that we get hints of throughout Scripture, but we don't fully know what's happening. We know that God is at work redeeming our lives through forgiveness, changing and transforming our hearts, bringing his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And this work that he does, we know, is somehow connected with this spiritual battle that is taking place in this reality that we can't see. And what we find out in the Gospels and what we find out in the story today is that part of Jesus' mission in the world, in addition to redeeming our own lives and forgiving us from sin and death and giving us new life through his resurrection, that what he also accomplished in this great victory 
is his victory over evil. In his life and in his death and his, in his resurrection, Jesus was victorious over evil. And this battle in Jesus' life begins in our story today as we look at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This is a showdown in the wilderness between Jesus and evil. And in our time in the Gospel of Matthew, we're talking about discipleship, about following Jesus. And what I want us to understand today is that discipleship is participation in this battle. Discipleship is not uh, about us having a nicer life. If your goal in following Jesus is to make this life easier or to make you get rich or to make sure that you have some sort of bulletproof protection against any bad thing ever happening to you, you are going to be disappointed. The promise of the Christian life and the promise of discipleship is that God is at work in us, equipping us and preparing us for the suffering and the pain in our life that will Come. And the life of discipleship is more and more being aware all the time that God is present with us in the suffering, that He is at work in it. In our suffering, He is, as we talked about last week, that refiner who's sitting there by the fire, refining our character and making us more and more into who He wants us to be. The life of discipleship with Jesus is not about us having these great plans for our life and then God coming alongside and making sure that we fulfill all those plans and goals that we have. And we do have to admit that very often we think of God in that way. We become very frustrated with him when he doesn't come through in the way that we think that he should. So discipleship is not simply about just making our life better. I want to say also that discipleship is also not merely at being better at being a Christian. Of course, it is about improving and becoming more and more like Jesus, but it isn't only about that. What I, what I want us to hear today is that our discipleship, learning to follow Jesus and to, through his power, experience Victory over sin and evil in our life is a participation in this bigger battle that's going on that we can't see with our eyes. That we are somehow players, characters, in this cosmic battle between God and evil. And our learning and discipleship and our growing up in Christ is training for participation in this battle. And the story that we're going to look at today This is, uh, first we're going to look at Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, and then his temptation in the wilderness. And these are stories where we see Jesus' victory over evil, and where we begin to learn how to experience that victory in our own lives as well. So turn to Matthew chapter 3 if you haven't already done so. And I'm going to begin by reading the story of Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do. This is to fulfill all righteousness. And John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. 
At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. What I want us to notice this morning about the baptism of Jesus is that before Jesus accomplished anything in his ministry, before he ever did a single miracle, before he ever preached the Sermon on the Mount, before he ever called his disciples, the Father declared over him, this is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And I think the way that we are, we kind of expect in to read this story is that that Jesus would go into his ministry, that he would perform miracles, that he would call, call the 12 disciples, that he would speak against the religious leaders, that he would go to the cross and suffer and die, and he would be raised from the dead. And then at that moment, after he had done all of those things, Jesus would say, this is my son, whom I love, who I'm well pleased. That's not the way the story goes. The Father gives Jesus his identity before he does anything. The identity and the love of the Father that Jesus had conferred on him on that moment is the foundation for his entire ministry. When you read Jesus' life, there is no sense that he is trying to earn the Father's love or acceptance. That he has to perform one more miracle or just accomplish one more thing or heal one more sick person. From this moment, Jesus' ministry is carried out with the deep knowledge and assurance of his relationship with his Father. There's no striving or grasping or wondering or hoping. Jesus knows his identity as the Son of the Father. And friends, this is what our baptism is all about. In our baptism, we become identified with Christ. And the words said of Jesus at his baptism becomes words said to you and to me. When we were baptized, we are immersed. That is, that's what the word baptism means, to be immersed. We are immersed into the life of Christ. We become a person who is, as Paul says, in Christ. And when we are baptized, we are saying to God and to ourselves and to the world that we want the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to be what our life is defined by. And so that the words that are said to Jesus at his baptism become the words said to us, you are my child. You are a part of my family and I am your father. And I love you. There's nothing that you can do or not do today that will cause me to love you more or less tomorrow. I am also well pleased with you. Gary, God likes you, right? You are my son. I love you, and I am well pleased. I think that is Gary's translation is I like you. God doesn't grit his teeth and love us in spite of himself. He loves us. He made us. He's chosen to be our father, and he enjoys us. Right now, I'm in a conversation with five different people about getting baptized. 
In the next few weeks, we're going to have quite a few baptisms. And so pray for these brothers and sisters of ours. Uh, three or four of them are children who are making clear decisions right now about following Jesus. And they're making these decisions separate. Their parents are coming to me separately, talking to me about it. But when they are baptized, these new brothers and sisters of ours, these men and women and these children, they become in him. And his identity becomes their identity. This moment where Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and the spirit comes down and the father said, this is my son who I love in him I am well pleased. This is where Jesus receives all of his power and authority for ministry. He knows in his ministry when the religious leaders attack him, these men who are the most powerful and influential people of his day, that when they attack him, he is able to stand and to respond without anxiety or distress or any defensiveness at all. Later, when he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest friends, when he's going to be uh, beaten and spit on and rejected by people, he knows, he knows that he is loved by the Father. He endures all of that, knowing that he is the beloved Son of God. Of the Father. But this knowledge and acceptance of his sonship to the Father is tested right away in this story. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Jesus is led into the wilderness by who? By the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. That in and of itself is significant, maybe even a little bit disturbing. Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted. I think one thing that's important for us to know and to help us to give a a more complete understanding is that um, our English word here that's translated tempt is a bit too limited uh, to what the Greek word says. I'm going to throw up some Greek words here, and I just want to say, every once in a while, I will give you a Greek word. I hope that you know that I'm not trying to impress you, okay? (laughs) I hope you know that, because my Greek is not impressive anyways, and so any time that I do this, please know I'm not trying to be smart I'm just trying to communicate something to you that I think is significant, okay? Can you got me in that? Okay. Um, So the Greek word for uh, tempt or test is perazzo. And it can mean either attempt to tempt or to test. 
Now, those two words, tempt and test, are different for us, right? They don't mean the same thing. You can't, you don't really tempt somebody to do good. You know, I'm tempted to give you a compliment today. We say that sometimes, but it's kind of ironic to say that. We tempt to do evil. When we take a test, a test isn't a temptation, right? A test is what? It's it's a proving. When we take a test in school, we are revealing what we know about the content. A test and attempt are different. And this is the word here, perazzo, that Jesus was led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil as a test, to reveal the character of Jesus. He is led into the, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil as a test to reveal his character. And I think the devil, the one who here is called the tester, the tempter, is quite surprised about who Jesus is. And he's quite surprised by the defeat that he suffers at the hands of Jesus in the wilderness. Because frankly, the tempter is very used to winning these battles. And what we see is that Jesus is victorious where everyone else in the history of Scripture has failed. And this is really the brilliant part about the way that Matthew arranges those first few chapters, almost, I think, to lead us to this very point. Remember we talked about earlier in the the stories of the genesis of Jesus in Matthew, where we have Jesus who, he goes down into Egypt And then he comes back out of Egypt. And here in Matthew 3, he goes through water in a baptism. And then he's led out into the wilderness for how long? For 40 days. What does this remind you of? The story of Israel, right? The people of Israel, who God calls his son, they are taken down into Egypt They escaped Egypt by water through the Red Sea, and they are led by God into the wilderness for how long? For 40 years. One of the many things that Matthew is communicating to us in these stories of the origins of Jesus, and then about his success here in the wilderness, is that he is the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel. He is going to succeed in overcoming the test where Israel failed. He is going to be the first human being to be obedient to God the Father when all other people in the past failed to do so. Um, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm also going to throw it up here on the screen. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, I'm going to read this out loud to you, and it's impossible to not hear the echoes of this uh, temptation story in Deuteronomy. And I've underlined some of the echoes here. Moses says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You hear the echoes here to this story. Israel was led into the wilderness for 40 years to be tested and 
pass or fail on the test. They failed, right? They grumbled. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They built a golden calf. Uh, That generation in Israel's life failed so badly that even Moses himself wasn't able to enter the promised land. Instead, there was Yeshua, Joshua, who led them into the promised land. And remember that Jesus' Hebrew's name is Yeshua. It's Joshua. We have another Joshua who is going to lead us into the promised land. In these early chapters in Matthew, Matthew is telling us that this Messiah, this son of David, this son of Abraham, he is here and he is going to succeed. He is going to pass the test where Israel failed. And we can go even back further into the story to that moment where the human beings were tested. Again, on page three of the Bible, we have the serpent who comes into the garden and he tempts, he tests Adam and Eve. And he uses the same tactics that he uses with Jesus in this story. And by the way, they're the exact same tactics that he still uses on you. He is a one-trick pony, but he is really good at the trick. What he does is he tries to get us to doubt the goodness and the word of God. And he appeals to our human desires and our weaknesses to grab on to something else because we don't trust the goodness of God. That's the only thing that Satan does. So Adam and Eve, they have a test, pass or fail. They fail the test. The tempter is used to winning these battles. This is the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of history. It's the story of our own lives. We, over and over again, we fail the test. The tempter wins. But in the story of Jesus, the tempter is utterly defeated. This is a showdown in the wilderness. God and humanity brought together in Jesus, overcoming evil. Jesus succeeds where all others have failed. He is victorious where all others have been defeated. But how? How was Jesus victorious over evil? Let's look at these three temptations. The first temptation, verses 1 through 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry Stop there for a second. Jesus was a real human being. He didn't kind of hover an inch or two over the ground. He didn't pretend that he was hungry. He didn't pretend that he was thirsty. He didn't pretend that the cross hurt. He was a real human being who experienced our brokennesses and our weaknesses, and in all of it was without sin. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is the first thing that Satan says to Jesus? If you really are the Son of God. What did we just read about? At the end of the last chapter, this is my son, the one I love, whom I am well pleased. And this is the first thing that Satan attacks God's word about his identity. 
the identity that the Father has given to Jesus. This is my son. This is the first thing that Satan calls into question. Jesus, you've been led out here by the Spirit into the wilderness, and you are suffering, and you are hungry. If you are the Son of God, what on earth are you doing out here, hungry and suffering like this? He's trying to undermine Jesus' trust in his Father. If the Spirit led you out here into this suffering, does the Father really love you? And so the tension that this question brings is, will Jesus trust his Father to lead him? Will Jesus trust the Father with his life? Spoiler alert, he does. (laughs) Jesus responds to the tempter, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Human beings do need bread, but we do not live only by bread. Other animals, birds and dogs, uh, all they really need is bread. And by, by bread, we mean physical sustenance, right? Other animals only need their physical needs to be met. My, my dog, CJ, does not ponder eternity. She doesn't ponder God. She ponders whether or not I'm going to actually give her the scraps off of my plate. That's about as far into the future that she ponders. Human beings are different. We need bread, but we can't survive only with bread. We need purpose. We need meaning. We need relationships. Human beings need more than just to physically survive. We need more than that. Above all, we need God. We need his word. We need a relationship with him. And Jesus, in his baptism, had that relationship with his father confirmed to him. And he was sure of it. And right here, Satan tempts Jesus to not trust that relationship, to not trust the father. And Jesus responds immediately, I am going to believe what God's word says about me. My life is more than about physically surviving. It's about pursuing this relationship with my father. I believe that he is who I said... I believe I am who he says I am. And no matter what circumstance or suffering I'm going through now, I will trust him. Second temptation, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, how does Satan lead? If you really are the Son of God. He leads the temptation in the same way, by calling into question Jesus' relationship with his Father. But then he does something else. He, he quotes some scripture. This scripture is from Psalm 91, which is a a beautiful psalm about trusting God in the midst of suffering. And Satan says to him, hey, if you are the son of God, if God really loves you, he will do what you ask. So I, I dare you, Jesus, I double dare you to throw yourself off this temple and see if your father will rescue you. If you really are the son of God, won't he do that for you? And guess what? Around the temple, there's always a lot of people, and it will be really, really impressive. 
What a great way to start your ministry, Jesus. This will be spectacular for you to do this. Everyone will know. You will know, and everyone will know that you are the Son of God. Be impressive, Jesus. Be spectacular. And Jesus responds with Scripture again, responds with God's word that we are not to put God to the test. To do what Satan was tempting him to do would put the Father in service to him rather than him in service to the Father. It it treats the Father as if he's this genie in the bottle. Rub the lamp, a genie comes out and gets what you want. Pray, quote Scripture, God gives you what you want. That's not how this relationship works. It's not how any relationships work. Right. The son trusts the father and the son obeys the father and does what the father says. And the son is not going to test the father with some sort of magic trick. Third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Jesus is taken to the top of a mountain. He sees all the kingdoms of the world, and the tempter promises him to give it all to him if he will simply bow down and worship. Notice the the tempter changes his tactic this time. None of this, if you are the Son of God. He tried that twice. It didn't work, so he tries something different. He simply offers Jesus power. This is really interesting. Jesus is the king. He's destined to be the king over all the kingdoms of the world already. And so the question here is not whether or not Jesus is king, whether or not Jesus will rule over the kingdoms of the world. The question is how that will happen. How will Jesus acquire this power and how will he exercise his power? Jesus will be king, but how will he be king? And the temptation here is the temptation for Jesus to grasp onto this good thing in the wrong way. It's the temptation to gain a good thing by the way of evil. evil. And Jesus faces this temptation and he notices how subtle it is and he responds very emotionally, away from me, Satan, be gone, Satan. Again, back to uh, the Greek, hupage satana equals be gone, Satan. Originally, I had go, Satan, but that looked too weird on the screen. (laughs) Be gone, go. Get away from me, Satan. It's emotional. Jesus had this emotional experience. He sees how subtle this temptation is and immediately be gone, Satan. There's another moment in Jesus' life where Jesus responds almost exactly the same way as this. Do you remember where it is? Where is it? With Peter. With Peter. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Just a few pages over. Matthew chapter 16. 
Starting in verse 13, Jesus uh, comes to this region, and he's with his disciples, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, uh, who, who do the people say that I am? What's, what's the talk out there about who I am? What do the newspapers say about who Jesus is? And they say, well, some of you think that you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Um, others of you think that, others think that you're Elijah or some other prophet. And Jesus turns to them and says, but, but you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Then verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said, Upage opizomu. The same word, upage, get out of here. Get behind me, Satan. In Peter's words, Jesus, I think, encounters the exact same temptation that he did back in the wilderness to be the Messiah in a different way than his father had planned for him. And there is something about this temptation that must have been truly tempting for him. To not have to go through all of that suffering and rejection And it's this temptation to grab onto power, to seize authority in a way other than the Father had for him that is a temptation for him. And we see Jesus responding so strongly both of these times, away from me, Satan, with that noise. That is the way that men would think, not the way that God would think. Jesus was going to be a king through a cross, through suffering. His crown was to be a crown of thorns. His throne was to be a cross. The way that Jesus acquires power is by loving his enemies, by doing good to those who hurt him. The way he will overcome evil is by turning the other cheek. The way that he will take care of sin is by forgiving it and making his own body an atoning sacrifice for it. And both times in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus encounters someone, the first time Satan and the second time Peter, stepping in and saying, Jesus, you can become king in some other way than that suffering. He responds very strongly, away from me. I don't have any of that. That is tempting to me. I see it for what it is. And away from me, that is the thing that is thinking of men and not of God. His mission from the beginning was to become king through suffering and dying. And the temptation, I think, for Jesus to gain power in some other way was a real temptation. And when he faces it, he reacts strongly. Upage, Satan, get out of here. Leave me. Jesus lived according to the word of God said about him at his baptism. When Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam and Eve failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded. Where you and I personally fail in our life, in those places where we fall, Jesus succeeded and was victorious. As we finish today, as we think about this calling to discipleship, 
We need to remember that as disciples, we cannot pretend that by following Jesus that we won't somehow find ourselves in a wilderness, in a time of testing and trial. And as disciples of Jesus, we're given the Lord's Prayer. And how does, how does the Lord's Prayer end? Lead us not into temptation, that is, perazzo, into the testing. Lead us not into tempta- temptation or the testing, but deliver us from evil. I think what this prayer says to us is that we don't have to seek out the wilderness. <laughs> we don't have to want it or long for it. We don't have to like it. In fact, we can even ask God to keep us from it. Tests and trials are hard. They hurt. They are painful. So we can ask God to keep us from it. Jesus says we can right there. Lead us not into temptation is a legitimate, a a real request that we ought to offer to God. But in our life, when we are in the test, when we do find ourselves in the wilderness, we pray that God would deliver us from the evil one, that we would not give in to his lies, that we would not, that we would only do good, that we would be faithful to the Father and believe what he says about us. There are many things that we could say about what it means to be victorious over temptation, and we will look at many of them from the book of Matthew, but what I want you to hold on today is this. The first step, the very most important way that we stand against our enemy is by remembering our identity as a child of God, going back to our baptism. You are my child. I love you, and I am well pleased with you. This is God's first and his very last word about you. The devil, the tempter, the one who tests will come and he will say, are you really a child of God? Don't you remember that thing that you did? Don't you remember that thing that was said about you? Don't you remember? Are you really a child of God? Does he really love you? If he loved you, why would you be going through this suffering? Why would you be going through these circumstances if he really loved you? Why is this happening to you? What do you say? Away from me, Satan. Away. They are lies. Live by the word of God that has been spoken to you. You are his child. He loves you, and he is well pleased with you. Our God in heaven, we thank you for that word that is spoken to us. It is your first word about us and our last word about us. We stumble and we fall. And I pray that for each of us when the tempter comes and he tests us and he asks us if we really believe God's word about us. Pray that you would give us the power by your spirit to tell him to leave and by the power of your spirit to repent and to turn around and to walk in your way. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.